Hello, you're listening to the Dietitian Cafe brought to you by New Outra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name is Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. To coincide with World Cancer Day, I'm delighted to be joined for today's episode by Maradi Birdie to discuss the evolution of nutritional care and cancer. According to the NHS, one in two people will develop some form of cancer during their lifetime, making this a particularly relevant topic. In this episode, Mary D and I will discuss the value of being both a registered dietitian and a registered nutritional therapist in cancer care, and the benefits of a more holistic approach to nutrition and well-being. We'll also cover the importance of diet in the prevention of cancer and how cancer care has changed because of the pandemic. Without further ado, it's my great pleasure to hand over to Meredy, who's going to tell us a bit more about herself. Hi, Harriet, and thanks for having me on, on your show. Um, I'm Meredy. Um, I've been a cancer dietitian for over 20 years. Um, I also trained as a nutritional therapy uh, therapist, uh, finished my training five or six years ago. Um, I've spent most of my career working in the NHS and some fabulous institutions, so started off at Norfolk and Norwich Hospital, did a lot of dietitian growing up at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, um, based for many years at UCLH, um, uh, been in a management role at Guy's and St Thomas's, and I've also spent some time at the Royal Marsden Hospital. Uh, while I was training as a nutritional therapist, I actually worked part-time on Harley Street at Leaders in Oncology Care, so it was amazing um, chance to get some experience of, of private practice. Um, Right now, I, I say I'm the founder of the Cancer Dietitian. Um, I'm loving working with a number of um, cancer charities. I'm also spending some time doing some project work with the Royal Mar- Marsden Partners um, Cancer Alliance. Um, in terms of sort of my passion, I would say because I've trained as a nutritional therapist and a cancer dietitian, I'm hugely passionate about combining my understanding of conventional approach with complementary therapies and more sort of whole life, whole whole person support. Thank you, Meredy, for that fantastic introduction. Really great to hear about your background and very much looking forward to finding out more about your work. Just before we delve into our topics for conversation, I'd like to ask you our quick fire round of questions so that our listeners can find out a bit more about you. So my first question, Meredy, is what was your favorite subject to study at school? I'm really going to show my age here, Harriet, and I'm going to say home economics. I don't think it even exists anymore. So um, I did GCSE home economics and A-level home economics. And the reason I liked it wasn't anything to do with the cooking. It was really understanding the science behind food and um, all of the wonderful um, assignments that we did, like looking at different um, nutritional requirements along the uh, life stages. So yes, very much kind of the science of food. I can definitely relate to that. I think I was probably one of the last years to have done um, food tech GCSE, but I remember making all kinds of souffles and flapjacks and smoothies. It It was great fun. I'm sure a lot of dietitians will resonate with that. What's a book that you recommend everybody should be reading at the moment, Meredy? You know, I'm really bad at having um, home books to read. I'm not a big reader, so I'm going to um, nominate a really good worky book. And I just love um, Dare to Lead by Brené Brown. I think for anybody that's um, advancing their career and looking at supporting others, um, it really talks about leading with authenticity and um, finding your style. And so, yeah, highly recommend that book. 
Yeah, I think Renee Brown is fantastic and can really um, recommend her as well. And finally, Meredy, how do you spend your time outside of work? Not that I imagine you have many hours free, but when you're not working, how do you relax? Well, a good dietitian answer, which is true, is I do enjoy going to the gym. So that's good. I think you always feel so much better after you've had a workout. Um, I really enjoy photography, actually. So I'm certainly not claiming to be an expert. I'm just taking photos with my iPhone, but I just love um, photo walks. um, So that's amazing. Um, My husband's a little bit older than me. So we've just started with a round of grandchildren. So we've got two tiny grandkiddies and they're keeping us busy. And the other thing that I think is fab is stargazing. So um, again, my husband sort of got, I'm not an astronomist and I'm not an expert, but I'm loving, I'm calling it stargazing. I'm loving that at the moment. No, it sounds very relaxing. I can just imagine you on a Friday night, chilling out, staring at the stars. (laughs) As long as it's not too cold, Harry. I'm a fair weather stargazer. Fair enough. Fair enough, Meredy. So Meredy, we want to know a bit more about your passion for cancer care. What made you decide to become a cancer specialist dietitian? I think I've always wanted to work in hospital. It didn't matter what I did. I just feel, um, it sounds a bit sad, but I feel at home in the hospital, in the clinical setting. So I love that. And I think once you've worked with cancer patients, there's just nothing like it in terms of the rapport the relationship you build and there's so much that you can do to help them and profile wise I guess within the MDT um, I feel like it's got dietetics has a really good profile so those, those are the main reasons I would say. and dietitians might be interested to hear that you are a registered dietitian but also a registered nutritional therapist in fact in our January episode we actually had a nutritional therapist on to, to find out more about their role and remit um, can you explain what led to you as a dietitian choosing to go down the route of training as a nutritional therapist? Because I think a lot of people will be wondering why you went about that route. Tell yes. us a bit more. I do get asked about that quite a bit, actually. Um, I think, yeah, because it's interesting to have both. I, I was so enjoying working in, in oncology. And um, I think especially in, in cancer, patients are really interested in conventional therapies and different supplements. And a, a, a real honest um, answer to that is I just felt that my knowledge base wasn't good enough. I would say, well, I'm not sure there's much evidence for that. Or I, I just didn't really know Harriet. And so I thought rather than sort of do a disservice to my patients, it would be best to study in that area. And and also, you know, I hadn't studied. My, my degree was such a long time ago. I thought it would be really um, good good to study again. And so I think the advantage is being able to sort of really balance that medical understanding with a more holistic approach. So I love having both. And what were your experiences of doing that training as a nutritional therapist? Was it similar to back in the days when you did your dietetic degree? Was it very different in how they taught you? Can you talk us through the similarities and differences? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, I think What's really relevant, actually, is I kind of thought there wouldn't be many people with a conventional background. And actually, there's loads of doctors on my course. There was um, a speech and language therapist and a couple of um, pharmacists and an optician as well. So I wasn't alone in terms of having that conventional background. Very much um, classroom studies. So, of course, this was pre-coronavirus. Um, I'm sure everything's online now. But um heaps of study, lots of assignments, um, end of semester exams, and then a period of clinical training where we would have uh, patients in clinic and we would be supervised. um, And the idea really behind the study is that it's the minimum of these three years. So the course that I did was three years and I was able to shorten it slightly because of my primary degree. 
but to be called a nutritional therapist this isn't an afternoon workshop it's something that's sort of at least a minimum of three years with its own regulatory body that's really interesting because I think a lot of people say that nutritional therapists are an unregulated profession. Anyone can call themselves a nutritional therapist. So are you saying if you're registered and you've done your three-year training, then you're kind of a legitimate registered nutritional therapist? Exactly that. And I think that the key word is registered. So yes, I mean, you could just call yourself a nutritionist or a nutritional therapist and you could have just done a potentially a, a workshop online. But the difference is that the minimum of three-year study with a regulatory Body. So somebody like BANCE, the British Association of Nutritional Therapists, or um, CNHC, and don't ask me, Harriet, what that stands for again, but that's another regulatory body for nutritional therapists, and I'm registered with both. And I just want to debunk one final myth, because I know that perhaps some skeptics listening will think, um, well, nutritional therapy, it doesn't tend to be a very evidence-based um, profession. So from your experience of having done those three years of training, would you say that a nutritional therapist is an evidence-based professional? Um, do you know, I think there's even probably huge variance within the courses that you take, Harriet. And I'll be completely honest, I love being a nutritional therapist, but I am so glad that I'm a dietitian because I think some of the nutritional therapy does, it's great to push the margins. It's great to challenge the margins. Some of it for me, particularly in cancer care, is over the margins. So a basic example might be somebody who's happy to use high-dose antioxidants uh, as a nutritional supplement on treatment. I personally wouldn't. Um, I, I think I really love being a dietitian so I can cherry-pick the gems from nutritional therapy. Um, I think that's probably the strength is having both. I think that's really fascinating. And I, I've certainly come across a few dietitians recently who are doing qualifications as nutritional therapists. So perhaps this is very much a route that we're going to see more of within our profession. So just moving on to your work as an oncology dietitian, Meredy, can you talk us through what a typical day in the life of Meredy looks like? Oh, gosh. And, you know, I suppose I've had so many varied roles, Harriet, which is amazing so it really depends what I'm, I'm doing it it might have been a ward round it might have been an outpatient clinic it might have been attending an MDT meeting or an audit meeting um, my favorite area is on treatment in radiotherapy so if I my dream job if I could just live in head and neck radiotherapy world I'd be more than happy with that as part of the MDT um, I've thoroughly enjoyed my management role so of course that's really varied in terms of staff supervision supervision support all of the things you would do within that. And then um, I'm thoroughly enjoying working with charities at the moment. So a few different cancer charities and I've done different things within those. So um, bespoke workshops, things like immune system support or prostate cancer support. Um, and then one of them, which was incredible, actually got some funding to look at more of a sort of long-term living well course. So we just did a six session program with a, um, behavior specialist and a health coach so yeah really varied hugely varied I'm interested to hear a bit more about your work with charities why is it important that there's this integrative support yeah so um and that's a really good question I think um one of the charities that I'm working with at the moment is Penny Brom UK and um they are incredible at looking at that whole life support that whole person support so um one of the things I'm, I'm helping on a regular basis with is the treatment support clinic. So they have a foundation of um, nutritional therapists that are absolutely incredible at what they do. But I guess 
my clinical understanding is what we do as a dietitian really helps with that on treatment support. So um, I'm actively helping them with treatment support clinic and we have a specialist nurse and a, a clinical specialist as well, a, a GP that inputs into that and um, it's bring whatever patients bring and the advantages that you have got that integrated support and we're able to help many, many people within one group setting. So it's reliant obviously for people having online access, but we're able to, to reach many more people that way. And in terms of your private practice work, Meredy, I'm quite interested to hear how that differed to your experience of working the NHS, because I presume it means that you get longer with your patients. Is that right? Oh, that, that, another good question. So um, I think private practice, so when I was working on Harley Street, the immediate change that I noticed, Harriet, was the time that I had with patients. So that's absolutely fantastic. The other thing is um, just in terms of access to blood tests. So um, it was very common that all patients had um, a vitamin D test on um, as a new patient at the clinic. So that's great. And we can look at what's optimal for them. Of course, in the NHS, that isn't a standard approach. And so that would be very much a request. Um, I think even in terms of private practice with the pressures of what's happened with coronavirus and the pressures on service overall, I think in in those areas we are having less time with patients but um, that's one of the things I love about my own practice is that I'll allow an hour and a quarter for a new patient and I'll have time for admin and everything but that's that's the beauty of sort of running my own schedule I guess because I can give time and that the patients need. Yes, of course, we can't not acknowledge the fact that the pandemic must have had on cancer care. I know I've certainly seen it across news headlines recently about delays in people seeking diagnosis, treatment. World Cancer Day is all about bridging the gap in equalities this year. What more do you think we could be doing to address this? Um, yeah, so closing the care gap and, and the concern is that, well, it, this is an, an international campaign. So I think we are so fortunate within the UK because we do have great access to healthcare, but 50% of the population doesn't have that access. So I think particularly within our dietetic sphere, then um, the pandemic has brought about amazing opportunities uh, to work differently and to, to support patients in different ways. And with the first uh, round of the pandemic, then we'll know that a lot of sort of services switched to online which is incredible and it was what we needed to do when we didn't know what we were dealing with but as time's gone on I suppose the concern is who are we leaving behind so being mindful that not everybody has online access not everybody can communicate in that way so thinking about patients with dementia as an example they'll think the television is talking to them and it just won't make any sense for them to be having a conversation online and people with speech difficulties and those sort of things. So we're relying on family members helping. So I think um, it's really thinking also what else are we missing? So there's a human connection in the room and with my head and neck cancer hat on thinking about new lumps and bumps and clinical concerns, then I suppose it's just making sure that we appropriately triage the patients that we need to see face-to-face and the ones that we can support online. So um, one, of, one of the thoughts, I guess, in terms of making sure that people have access is partnering up with third sector um, organisations. So things like the charities, whether we can make sort of facilities available for people to pop in and log on and, and those sorts of, I think there's clever ways to look at new uh, partnerships going forward. 
That's interesting because I was going to ask you, do you think there have been any benefits that have come about as a result of the pandemic? Presumably you've all had to embrace this new digital way of working. Do you think that's here to stay? Oh, I think definitely. And I think actually it's really nice for patients. And I was doing this with my cancer dietitian practice before. I think um, supporting patients online, especially as a dietitian, I think it works really well. And patients, if they don't feel like traveling to clinic, if they don't feel like getting washed or changed, they can just be on their sofa. I've had a couple of patients in their bed, literally in their PJs. um, And it just brings me to them in the environment that best works for them so I think it's great um yeah and and flexibly it's lovely for me because it doesn't matter whether I'm at home in London or somewhere else actually I can still carry out my duties so um flexibility on both sides is great and it means we can reach more patients so with my penny brom work I might actually just see one person at a time but actually we're having 20 patients attend a clinic um, and they're getting the value of the healthcare professionals but also what they share within the group because I've got experience as a cancer dietitian of course I have but actually the true value coming comes from people who have lived that experience um, so that that allows them the combination of the two which is great. It, just going back to the cancer patients that you tend to support as a dietitian, just to clarify, do all cancer patients have access to a dietitian during their treatment or is it only at either certain stages in their treatment or certain types of cancers that have access to a dietitian? Can you explain a bit more? Yeah, so I've been really privileged, privileged Harriet, to work in university teaching hospitals and they tend to be fairly well resource but still it's going to come down to clinical needs so it tends to be good good support within head and neck cancer care upper GI surgery pancreatic support hematology because they are the sort of for want of a better word more more toxic treatments I guess in terms of implications and side effects but um, it does unfortunately mean that patients like breast cancer patients prostate cancer patients typically don't get access to the same anywhere near the same level of support. So I, I think the best way to approach it is the, the, the best clinical support is the one where the dietitian is an integral part of the multidisciplinary team where they're attending meetings where new patients are presented because then we're able to track them through the whole pathway. Otherwise we are relying on um, colleagues or patients self-referring if they're in clinical need. So in an NHS setting, at what stage do you tend to get involved in a patient's care? Is it Um, prior to them going through treatment like radiotherapy or chemo for example or or would it tend to be later on down the line for example if they've lost weight or they're at risk of malnutrition when would you normally get involved in the NHS? Yeah so again it comes down to that clinical specialty so within I'm using my head and neck experience again just because that's I guess that's my passion and that's where most of my experience lies but the beauty of that is that you're part of the MDT where new patients are presented so I can track them from the point of diagnosis so I know what they're having before they do almost um, and and we keep them to the point of sort of rehabilitation but somebody else in a less sort of resourced area like breast cancer we wouldn't be part of that MDT and it would only be if there's a clinical need and that does mean actually clinical need in terms of symptoms and side effects and it might be somebody that just wants some information there aren't the resources for that which is where we can look to more sort of digital support and third sector support as well I think. 
When you're offering advice to patients during their cancer treatment pathway, for example, they might be experiencing side effects, I imagine, fatigue, nausea, taste changes, maybe appetite loss. I'm interested to hear how you integrate your dietetic background with your nutritional therapy qualification. How holistic is your advice for these patients? And can you maybe give us a few examples of how you tackle some of those symptoms and combine that dietetic and nutritional therapy approach? Oh, yeah, I can. I think, let me think. So fatigue's probably quite a good one. And, and I don't think I'm doing anything different to any other amazing cancer dietitian here, Harriet. So I don't want to sort of think that I'm doing something that's really unique and wonderful but um in terms of fatigue I would think about uh, movement probably is the first tip so I would say actually there's stronger evidence for um gentle exercise and continuing movement which is a huge shift in the advice that we've known of old I'd look certainly look at dehydration I would look at um blood sugar balance so that's slightly naturopathic I guess in thinking but uh, we do know that peaks and troughs of blood sugar levels is not going to be a good thing in terms of energy and um, I would think about checking vitamin d I would think about checking hematinics um so your blood um, iron panel I would think about accepting offers of help so so many patients think no I'm going to power on I'm going to power on but actually it's important that they do um accept help um, there's an incredible service called meal train i don't know if you've heard about that before so it's a wonderful idea of a um, social platform that patients can register um, their own page and add friends and it means that if they can't cook or they don't have any energy to cook they can actually say look i'd love meals on a thursday or this sort of time and groups of people can come together and actually um, help provide those um, support think about um, meal boxes so um, things like HelloFresh and Gusto and those sorts of things and loads of patients ask me for healthy recommendations on ready meals which is great but actually I say to them you know just remember adding some fresh veg to any ready meal healthifies it so yeah those sorts of things yeah it's easy when I've got somebody in front of me but there's some other things I might think about yeah, I like that. They're really um, practical, tangible tips, um, which is what I imagine people going through such you know, intensive treatment would want. What about supplements? Do you get asked much about supplements and what's your kind of positioning on that as a dietitian and nutritional therapist? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I think my, my passion is really supporting people on treatment, which means actually there's very few supplements that I would recommend so the one um that i would think is, and, and you'll know this because of all of the media messaging around coronavirus but um vitamin d so we used to think about vitamin d just in terms of musculoskeletal health but we know more than ever the value of support around an immune system and anti-inflammatory um support so i definitely look at vitamin d and ideally be testing to look at what range they're at to know what supplement to recommend um, I might think about omega-3 if somebody really isn't able to eat any oily fish at all, if they're cachectic, um, I might consider omega-3. I definitely think about something gentle and lovely like Epsom bath salt. So a lot of the chemotherapy drugs mean that we um, lose more magnesium in the urine and it's difficult to keep on top of magnesium levels. So something like an Epsom bath soak or a foot soak or some magnesium butter might be nice to do. Um, and then if they are sort of compromised in terms of their oral intake, I would think about a nice multivitamin around 100% of the recommended daily amount. 
of um, antioxidants, and nutrients. So that there would be my sort of core, my my toolbox. Yeah, I find it absolutely fascinating because I think, you know, dietitians were so prone to have this, you know, no, we don't recommend supplements unless it's, you know, the government recommended vitamin D, for example. Um, but I think it's f- fantastic to hear how you've combined these two qualifications that you've got. And clearly you offer a very holistic approach to your patients, which which is more important than ever in cancer care. I, I just want, oh, sorry, go ahead. I think the key thing is safety. So, you know, if, if I was going through cancer treatment, I would want to do anything that adds that extra edge in terms of taking back some control and getting myself well again. So I think the balance is, I, I'm not so concerned about huge amounts of robust evidence if actually patient believes it's doing them well, but it's about making sure that it's safe for them. And that's, that's the key defining <laughs> decision really. Definitely. And and empowering them to make those decisions for themselves as well. Um, I just want to move on to talking a bit about the role of nutrition in cancer prevention, because we've talked a lot about cancer treatment. So are there any foods that increase or decrease your risk of developing certain cancers? And can you talk us through that in a bit more detail? Yeah, so um, we we don't tend to get because we get so involved in supporting patients on treatment. I think an area that I'd love to spend more time in and I don't is around cancer prevention because there's such a huge role that we can play um, in terms of um, specific foods I guess it's a bit of a general answer but anything that increases your risk of obesity so we know that unfortunately obesity is linked with a higher risk of at least 12 um, different cancers so you are thinking about sort of sugary drinks particularly um, cakes biscuits fried foods too many fatty foods and fast foods so sort of um, takeaways Obesity, definite risk factor. Um, Alcohol linked with at least six different types of cancer. Um, And the other one with sort of proven links is um, red meat. So moderate amount, we should be having moderate amounts of red meat, but particularly less than processed meat. So things like the chorizo, salamis, those sorts of things. So if you have a patient that you've worked with during cancer treatment, do you recommend that they take those points into consideration if they ask you about ways of reducing their risk of recurrence for example so it it so depends where they're at and I guess with my holistic approach it it depends what somebody's bringing to me so actually if they're eating fairly well but they are highly stressed they're not sleeping they're not making any time for relaxation the beauty of having my own time to spend with them is actually I'm going to focus on those things first And I I think about that pyramid model in terms of where to focus their attention. So it is the sleep, the exercise, the stress levels with something like a wheatgrass shot at the top as the cherry on the top, if that's what they want to do. But actually, no, it's about the foundation model. So, yeah. I just wanted to go back. Um, to what we were talking about earlier about sort of the role of nutrition and diet in the cancer treatment process. Can you tell us a bit more about targeted dietary approaches to address the inflammatory process in cancer? Yeah, so um, in terms of, well, we know that ageing um, means that we develop more of an inflamed sort of phenotype and we know that lifestyle choices can affect inflammatory processes. Unfortunately, the presence of cancer and cancer treatments also drives 
inflammation. So that's why many patients will describe actually they, they notice that their muscle tone and function really changes throughout um, treatment. So I am a big fan of looking at sort of what we can do. Uh, I've already described anti-inflammatory lifestyle in terms of sleep, stress, exercise. Food-wise, it would be things like um, oily fish for omega-3. So I'll think about those sorts of um, factors. I'll think about plant-based omega-3, so your flaxseed, chia, hemp, um, walnuts, um, less sort of fatty foods and fried foods for the omega-6. Huge variety and diversity of fruit and veg as much as possible for the um, different antioxidants. And patients will ask, do I need to limit antioxidants through food? And I'm like, I say, definitely not. Go for it. Eat as many berries as you want. Um, and then certainly vitamin D for anti-inflammatory as well. That's really interesting, Meredith. It seems that that vitamin D message is coming through very strongly in this episode today. Absolutely. Meredith, just want to move on to talk a bit about um, weight maintenance during cancer treatment, because I know that malnutrition is obviously a huge concern for cancer patients. So why is it important that patients try to maintain their weight and eat well during their treatment? So, um, well, it's really important in terms of so clinical outcomes. We know that patients tolerate treatment better postoperatively in terms of healing, wound healing and repair. Um, they're less um, concerned in terms of infection risk, um, but also in terms of sort of resilience as well. So if you find patients are unsupported, if they're losing a lot of weight, then actually they really struggle through treatment and you then risk not giving them the full amount of the chemotherapy or the radiotherapy regime. So yeah, really important overall. I've heard a lot about prehabilitation recently. It's been in the news. I'm just wondering what's the role of a dietitian in that prehab process? For example, if you were to come across a patient who was at risk of malnutrition before they started treatment, would you, would you address that before they proceeded to undergo their treatment? Um, what, what is the role of the dietitian in that prehab stage? A huge area of, of interest. Again, I think it's the coupling of the nutrition plus the exercise plus the psychological support. So to really improve functional status. And I think um, people worry that actually a one-off intervention won't make any difference. And, and obviously if we've got more time, more input we can give the better, but even just a one-off session, just to signpost people and get them um, nourished in the right way makes a huge difference. So yes, it's important. Yes, it makes a difference in terms of um, possibly even to the level of making treatment possibilities an option, uh, different treatments an option for patients where they previously wouldn't have been able to have it. So it's opening up the scope for patients, but um, certainly in terms of getting through and their recovery and their length of stay, and even through to survivorship and self-supported management, the, the more we can get in, the sooner we can get in, the better. Is that something that you're also seeing in your private practice? Are you having patients contact you earlier on in their cancer journey, perhaps even prior to, to them beginning treatment? Yes, definitely. Um, I am. And actually, people are looking at nutrition as one of the things that they can do to take back some control. And of course, they take to Dr. Google and find that it's just overwhelming in terms of the information that's out there. And so it's amazing that they seek somebody who's got 
specialist knowledge to actually help navigate that and pick out the bits that are relevant to them. But it's not just the advice, then it's actually about putting it into a way that works in their life. So when I first meet somebody, I'm very keen to point out, actually, we're going to talk about lots of different things you can do, but let's just go away with a couple of nutrition suggestions and maybe one lifestyle suggestion. Because if they go away with 17, then actually, if I meet them in three weeks, they won't have done any of them because it's it's just so overwhelming. So it's about navigating the information and actually gently supporting them, coaching them, I guess, to find a way that works in their life. Yeah, and I'm sure that that will resonate with many of our listeners. We often talk about smart goals in dietetics, don't we? And making sure that they're very much realistic and achievable for patients. So, Meredy, as we come towards the end of this episode, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to debunk any myths and misconceptions that you typically hear as a cancer dietitian on the Dietitian Cafe. So what are some of the biggest myths and fads that you've come across that you would like to set the record straight about? Oh, do you know that there's something different every week, Harriet? So there's probably too many to go through all of them. Um, one, one of the things that came up this week, which was of interest, was um, should I be buying alkaline water? So, so patients really think actually by spending such um, a huge amount on these things that look like a big shiny product that's going to solve all of their health woes um, and and this, um, the theory I guess is that actually um, a cancer won't thrive in an alkaline environment so if they eat foods and drink fluids that actually help alkalize their body then that's going to be supportive and um, we it, unfortunately it doesn't work like that so I, I use the analogy of temperature and I explain actually that um, it, it, you know the way that you get you're too hot and you have pyrexia you're very unwell same thing with you, your temperature being too low. I relate that to pH of the blood. And I explain that actually, if your blood's too acidic or too alkali, you'd be very, very unwell. So the body has compensatory mechanisms um, and explain about kidneys and um, respiratory function to make sure that your pH stays just where it should. So please don't spend any extra money on alkaline water, only if you think that it's um, adding something in terms of it's delicious and you're not gonna drink anything else. <laughs> Absolutely. So no to alkaline water. That's uh, the main message from this debunking session then. Are there any resources you recommend if there are dietitians wanting to point patients towards sort of evidence-based practical support? Are there any particular websites or resources that you would recommend? Yeah. So the World Cancer Research Fund has some incredible resources. And I think in the last few years, the amount of work that's gone on on into that is just uh, huge. So patient-facing booklets, healthcare professional resources, the reports are on there. There's um, an amazing matrix that I would recommend to any professional colleagues. And you can look at the grading of evidence around um, probable risk of, of cancer in terms of, sort of food, you know, with red meat linking with bowel cancer, as an example. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely recommend that as a resource. And also the British Dietetic Association, of course, the oncology group have some amazing resources on there. And they've done a lovely fact sheet on um, debunking common myths. And also um, some recent work on neutropenic diets and uh, you might old fashioned wise, we would think of them as a clean diet and how that advice has changed. So those two places I would highly recommend. 
Fantastic. And we can certainly link to those in the show notes as well, if you're interested in reading up on those resources that Meredy's mentioned. My final question to Meredy is, obviously, as evidence-based professionals, we're always um, looking forward to the evolving evidence base. Now, Meredy, when we chatted before, you told me that you're particularly excited about the evidence relating to medicinal mushrooms and cancer care. So can you tell us a bit more about where you think the research is heading in this direction and what that could mean for cancer patients in the future? Oh, thanks, Harriet. Yes, I was making you laugh about um, magic mushrooms. So that medicinal mushrooms, and my husband always calls them magic, magic mushrooms. So with my naturopathic hat on, it was more an area to sort of keep an eye on, really. Um, we know that um, in the diet, things like shiitake, um, reishi mushrooms, oyster mushrooms, that are considered medicinal mushrooms. So that, that's fab. But actually in China and Japan, um, they're using uh, therapeutic levels, so supplement levels of these medicinal mushrooms alongside conventional treatments, so chemo and radiotherapy. And they're using them for two reasons. One is symptom management and the other is potentially for their own immunomodulatory effect. So I think um, it's an area of interest. Certainly pre-pandemic, there were some multi-centre trials um, in Spain, um, in various oncology specialist centres. So it'd be great to see what comes out of there. I certainly don't think there's enough evidence to be recommending um, anything as part of our standard practice, but I think um, it's something of interest and something, yeah, watch this space. Watch this space indeed. Well, that's been a fantastic episode, Meredy. Thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your valuable knowledge with us. A huge thank you to New Altra for making this podcast possible. If you do enjoy listening to The Dietitian Cafe, please consider subscribing and leaving a review or a five-star rating so that we can reach even more healthcare professionals. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you very much for listening and our next episode will be out very soon. Bye.